Hey, City Church family. Um, Pastor Anthony here, along with Jim. Yeah. We've been uh, going through this series on hope. Uh, before we dig into a um, little bit of introduction of the series and intro to today's sermon, uh, which first of all, we're going to be in Revelation 12, so if you have a Bible, you can uh, turn there and uh, bookmark it. Um, but I want to tell you about next Sunday. Uh, this Sunday, as you know, we're still continuing online virtually, and uh, happy that you'd be here to join us for that. But uh, next Sunday, we're going to open up the building, and uh, would love for you to be able to come and be a part of that. We're going to do our best to meet all of the standards, regulations, requirements that uh, the government has put forth for us to uh, maintain social distance and all that sort of stuff. But uh, would love to have you 10 a.m. If you can't make it, though, we want to let you know that uh, we're going to be shooting it live. And so if you can join us on our Facebook page um, and hang out with us live, then uh, totally acceptable and great. Would love to have you in that regard as well. And so, uh, yeah, that's my update for, for next Sunday. Um, but with that in mind, Jim's going to introduce us for uh, today's, uh, today's sermon. Yeah, William Styron, who is an excellent writer, by the way, he wrote Sophie's Choice. He also suffered from depression, and he wrote a little booklet called Darkness Visible. And what he said in it was, it's the hopelessness, even more than the pain, that crushes the soul. And I think, uh, unfortunately, that's true. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this kind of series, is to dispel the idea of hopelessness, especially among those who are following Jesus. Um, so we're in this series. We've done six of them so far. This is the sixth one here. Uh, and we're talking about this concept of hope. Um, it's an abstract one, but yet uh, it is also a present thing. So it's not only something that uh, is fulfilled in the future, but it also has a present reality to us. So what we want to do in, this, in these talks is to put some um, flesh, as I said before, around these concepts so that uh, hope becomes a tangible thing for us. So today, we're going to be looking at hope for those who are spiritually oppressed. And I, I found that Satan often attacks us in that hopelessness that we have and, or that we experience. And we're going to talk about who he is and his, his strategies uh, in our lives and in the world. But first, um, we're going to read a passage that kind of uh, talks about him um, in a, uh, a strange way. Uh, it's in the book of Revelation. And there, the book of Revelation is very controversial in the sense that there's, interpretations can be uh, quite different. Uh, some see it as a, uh, as a historical uh, reference. There's a, there's a historical event happening behind uh, these events going on. It's full of imagery, full of symbolism. Um, and sometimes people are scared of the book to read it, to understand it, to study it. I don't think we should be. I think we should uh, look at it. There's a book out there called Four Views on Revelation. I'd encourage you to look at it and, uh, and see um, uh, the different ways in which people can approach this book. We're going to look at uh, Revelation chapter 12 where it's a description of uh, the dragon, and the images are actually explained, so it's not really that complicated. Um, we've just gone through in the book of Revelation the, the seal judgments, and then there's an interlude 
Then there's the trumpet judgments, and then there's an interlude, and then there's the bowl judgments, right? Well, we're right between the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. Now, <laughs> um, however that's viewed, but it's an interlude in here. And so here we, we enter into a discussion about Satan. Revelation 12, starting in verse 7, going through verse 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, discover more about our adversary today. May uh, we be, become wise to his person, to who he really is, and also to his strategies in our life. And may make us um, uh, uh, have wisdom around uh, the ways in which he accuses and deceives and, um, and can unfortunately rob us of hope. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I'm pretty certain uh, that it's not just me who's experienced this uh, sort of scenario where um, you've gone through something, uh, whether it's in a relationship or something maybe even with a, a work-related thing, um, where at the end of it you go, man, there was more to that than what I thought. What, what I perceived, what I felt, the, the words that were exchanged, the circumstances that I was involved in, what I experienced was something, and it was real, but there was something more to it. Uh, sometimes maybe it's uh, reading between the lines. You know, somebody says something, and you realize maybe a week or a month or even years later, there was more to what that person said than what meets the eye, than what the ears heard. And um, I think as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I wouldn't be surprised if many of us have experienced that in that sort of way as well, just following Jesus, that he was doing something or something was happening more than what met our eyes, what met our feelings, what met our understanding. I think that often is actually the case, and many of us miss it. Um, and I think that's partly due to the fact that 
we live in a westernized civilization that relies a ton on empirical evidences, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't, <laughs> um, but because of that and our need for everything to be tangible and explainable, um, we miss out on the fact that there is actually an unseen realm. And today that's what we're talking about, is how there is often, many times, more than what meets the eye. And it's super important to understand this because uh, in the scriptures, it's mentioned over and over and over again, all throughout the Old and the New Testament, that uh, what we experience in this reality that we know, that we can taste, touch, see, smell, hear, and so forth, um, isn't all that there is. Uh, there's a great book that I would recommend that uh, I would show it to you if I had it, but I let somebody borrow it. It's called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. Um, it's really great. Um, really anything that he has, I would pick up. He's got a podcast called The Naked Bible. I would check that out as well. Um, but what he points out is uh, really how it is that we've missed this. And what's crazy is when you read through the life and the ministry of Jesus, you see this over and over and over again but somehow we kind of gloss over it. We, we forget that there is this unseen realm. In fact, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is not just mentioned, but it's a huge piece of what happens. In fact, right after Jesus is baptized, there's an instance uh, where he is confronted by Satan in the wilderness. It's the very first thing that Jesus does. The very first like, sort of conquering thing that Jesus does is to take on Satan in the wilderness. I want to read to you um, this passage in Matthew 4 before we really get into this concept of uh, spiritual oppression and how to be set free. It says, So Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the devil took him to the holy city and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their head, I'm sorry, on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it's written, you shall, put the, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, just notice this. This is, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Before he does any miracles, before he calls his disciples, before he gives any teaching, the first thing that happens after his baptism, being proclaimed the Son of God, is to be tempted by Satan. So there's this spiritual thing happening right out the gate. But notice also, at the end of it, You've got the angels comforting him. So you've got this evil entity, this spiritual evil entity tempting him, and then you've got these spiritual good entities comforting him. And this is the very beginning of Jesus' life and ministry. Super critical. Because right after this, Jesus will call his disciples to begin to teach them, but when he sends them out to do works, one of the things that he does is he says, go and cast out demons. And of course he would say this because leading up to that, he's been doing that over and over and over again. So when you read through the Gospels, you notice that there is a ton of demonic presence. But sadly, for us, again, I think in our westernized culture, we just, 
we just gloss over these texts as if that was something back then, that was something, you know, in that place, in that day and age, in that, you know, culture. And they, they believe those kinds of weird things. But I think that's a huge um, mistake on our part. C.S. Lewis, uh, he says it this way in the Screwtape Letters, which, by the way, if you've never read, yes. pick it up. It's fantastic. But really, anything C.S. Lewis has written yeah. is fantastic. Um, but here he says this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialistic or magician with the same delight. And I think he's, I think he's spot on. We can swing the pendulum so far one way where we go, there is no spiritual realm, or we can swing it so far the other way where that's all that there is. Today, um, without trying to swing it too far this way, we're going to swing it some this way <laughs> and try to recognize the, just the simple fact that there is a reality to spiritual oppression. And so I, I want to unpack this idea and also the hope that we have within it and how to overcome it under uh, two simple headings. The first is sort of the schemes of Satan, and then the second is uh, the hope to overcome. And so, um, or how it is really that we, we overcome. So the first is really this, the schemes of Satan. And I, I want to mention two things uh, that are assigned to him or how it is that he does scheme us. There's titles given to him, Satan, devil. We'll get to those um, in, in the second point, but, uh, or in the second subpoint. But here I want to address really how it is that he works. What does he do in order to oppress us or try to keep us from living the lives of joy and purpose that I think God has in store for us? So if you'll notice, if you go back to the text, there's two. He's a deceiver and he's an accuser. And so let's start with, first of all, the deceiver. In verse 9 it says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, and notice this, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The deceiver. So he gives him these titles. Again, we'll get back to that, Satan, the devil. But these, these titles are described with something that he does. He is a deceiver. This is a, a really common idea used throughout the scriptures. In fact, uh, Jesus speaks to the devil as a liar, which is really the same concept as the deceiver found in uh, John chapter 8, which is really uh, it's, it's this conversation that happens between Jesus and these religious leaders, and it's extremely confrontational, and I can only imagine being on the other side of this. Here's what he says to them. You are of your father, the devil. Just put your shoe, your, yourself in those shoes for a second. Ingratiates himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and your will is to do your father's desires. His desires. Think about that. His motives. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now notice this. Jesus puts together the idea of a liar and a murderer, right? So he's a murderer from the beginning and he's a liar and the father of lies. So what we should be thinking is how does murder or death coincide with lying? So we'll get there in a second. Notice in 2 Corinthians as well as in Colossians. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, in their case, the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this Satan, who is a liar, who is a murderer, is trying to blind people to keep them from seeing God 
or distance them from God, which is really that idea of death. In Colossians 2, you read, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. But notice this, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So what we find is this this constant call for us to have our eyes opened uh, to not fall into deception or into lies. But what is, what is this deception and lie? What are these things really all about? And um, I, I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence or be too elementary, but let's just think about these ideas for a second because I think it's really, really important. Um, when you think about deception, I think the easiest way to understand it is actually to, to understand the opposite. Uh, if you deceive somebody, that's the opposite of giving to somebody or somebody receiving something, right? If you've been deceived, something's been taken from you. But when you're receiving, something's given to you. In other words, um, there's the implication of a giver. There's a gift. Now there's a holding on to that thing. The, you, you have control over this now, right? So somebody gives it to you. You take it captive. You hold on to it. You have it for yourself, right? That's what it means to receive. To deceive would be the exact opposite, right? It would be somebody taking what it is that you have control over and taking it for themselves. When we're talking about deception, we're really talking about uh, reality. And, and by that, I mean, think about lies for a second. What is a lie? A lie is really nothing more than a twisting of or a taking of the truth, right? When there's something really real and somebody takes that from you, what they're doing is they're leaving you with something that is false. When somebody takes reality from you, they're leaving you with a false reality, right? Um, And when they're doing that, they're trying to do something to you. They're trying to get you to live in light of that false reality, right? So think of it this way, because lies lies can be believed um, no matter how much a, a person uh, thinks that it's true or not, right? They can, they can buy into it. So for instance, this wall behind us here is, is black, right? Uh, that's reality. That's what our society, this color, has deemed to be black. A, a person can believe it's blue or orange or red all day long. In fact, uh, they might even believe it so wholeheartedly that they would say, I would die for the idea that that wall is orange or blue or whatever other color than black. They can believe it that wholeheartedly. That doesn't change the reality that it's black, right? So lies can be believed wholeheartedly and yet still not be true. But the purpose behind the lie is what's really important, right? When a person tells a lie, they're intentionally trying to deceive or to take away what is really real. So a person telling a lie is trying to get you to believe in a false reality and live in accord with it. And there's a purpose behind it. Um, let me give to you kind of on the spectrum of joyful lies in a way, which sounds kind of weird and ironic, but you'll see what I mean. And then really manipulative or trying to destroy your joy and purpose kind of lies. Okay, so um, on, on this side of the spectrum, I'm calling them joyful lies, but I don't think there's really a such thing. as <laughs> You'll see what I mean, okay? Um, in my house... Um, we, uh, we love to scare each other. And I know that's really weird. <laughs> and maybe you don't in your household and you totally disagree with it. I get it. That's totally fine. But uh, like I have been scaring my kids since they were really little and we just find 
tons of fun in it. And it's, it's weird, I get it, but my kids have taken on <laughs> this, this practice as well. So they're constantly trying to even now scare me and their mom because we scare them constantly. I mean, it could be as simple as I'm sitting here and they reach for my popcorn and I just go, you know, and, and just watch them flinch, you know? Like we do stuff like this constantly, it's, it's hilarious. Um, what we also do is we plan scares, right? So, so one kid goes into the bathroom uh, and as they're in the bathroom, another kid says, hey, I really want to scare that one. So for instance, my oldest daughter, Alexa, my son, Zeke, I'll use them as examples, right? Zeke goes into the bathroom. We're sitting in the living room and Alexa says, I really want to scare Zeke. We're like, okay, <laughs> why not? That's what we do. So she's like, I'm going to go hide in the kitchen behind the door so when it comes open, he's not going to see me. And then when he closes the door, I'm going to be right behind him and scare him. And we're like, that sounds fantastic and fun. Let's do it. So she goes into the bathroom. She sneaks in there and she hides behind the door. Now Zeke comes out and she misses it. Zeke comes into the living room. We don't see her come back and we're like, okay, she still wants to scare him. So we know that she's probably going to hide somewhere. So we go, Zeke, you forgot this thing in the bathroom. Can you go get, or like, I'm really thirsty. Can you get me a cup of water? Now I just lied to him because I'm not thirsty. I don't need a cup of water. I don't need anything in there. So I'm painting a false reality for Zeke. In this false reality, Zeke goes into the kitchen, and when he goes into the kitchen, Alexa jumps out and scares him. Now, by me creating that false reality for Zeke, what I've done is I've taken the truth from him. Mm. And in taking the truth from him, he's going to live in accord with it. Mm. And as he lives in accord with it, he gets scared in that moment, right? Now, that's just fun and games. But when you think about huge false realities, right? What it does to our, our lives at large, man, people can paint false realities that can cause us to live in such a way that our joy and our purpose is stolen. Uh, just this last week in, in quarantine, you know, I was watching uh, this documentary series and I forget if it was on Amazon or Netflix about cults. And there are some really crazy things that people have told other people to manipulate the truth, to steal from them what is reality so that they might live in a certain way. But as they live in that way, what happens, again, is their joy, their purpose is stolen. Okay. Um, so if Satan is a deceiver. That's the nature of what he does. But he must have a strategy around, even greater, that around our thinking. And as you were saying, creating these false realities as a deceiver, um, especially in relationship, uh, we're talking kind of vertically here a little bit about you know, how we can create realities for each other in a, in a fun way. But he does it vertically as well towards God. How does, how does he do that? Yeah, and this is the most destructive way that Satan works. So I, I know I was kind of being playful there, so let's get a little serious here. Um, Satan wants to steal our joy and our purpose, I think primarily... Uh, in two ways. We'll get to the second one in our second sub-point about him accusing. So he wants to steal our joy and purpose by making us think about ourselves and our relationship to him differently. So we'll get to that in a second. But I think the primary way that he deceives and steals our joy and purpose is by making us think about God differently. And the way that he does this is he gets us to think of God both less and more. Now, the more is is kind of an interesting thing, so we'll, we'll get there. But let's think first of all about the more kind of easy way of thinking about what he does in, in terms of making us think about God differently, which is less. This is kind of obvious, but Satan will often cause us to think about God in terms of him being 
less good or less loving than what he actually is. And this stems all the way back to the garden, right? You get this imagery in Revelation of the serpent, right? And John's pulling that from the garden. Uh, he's, he's wanting us to go back to Genesis 3, where the serpent enters in and begins to tempt Adam and Eve. If you recall, before the temptation, though, God puts them in this garden and he gives to them everything, right? Except for this one tree. He says, you can eat of any of this and it's all good for you, right? He gives to them each other this amazing unity with one another. He gives to them purpose. He says, you can exercise dominion. He, so he gives and he gives and he gives, right? That's God's character in nature is to give. He's generous. Satan comes in and he begins to tempt. And the way that he tempts is by saying, oh, but God left this one thing out for you, so he's not good. So he's stealing from the goodness of God to try to get them to think that God is less than good. And the same carries on throughout really all of scripture. Um, the, the fact that the Israelites don't trust in God, they don't think that he's good. And then on into the New Testament, you get people who are constantly questioning not just the goodness, but then also even the love of God. And I'm sure you and myself included have often questioned yeah. not just the goodness of God, but the love of God. Yeah. Does God really have open arms for me? Um, does God really forgive me of all of my sin? You know, and so Satan wants us to think that he's not good, he's not loving, he's not forgiving. So he'll, he'll strip away attributes of God or minimize attributes of God, his grace, for instance, right? His love, all of those things. That seems pretty obvious. I think we're all aware of the way in which he works to that capacity. But here's something that I think um, is a way that he deceives us that is really important and that I think we often forget. And that is that he makes God more. Now, that sounds odd because isn't, isn't God already everything, right? So here's what I mean by that. In stripping away or making less, we're talking about what is attributed to God in terms of his character, his nature, and his actions. So God is good, loving, forgiving, right, infinitely, and he strips those away. What I might say in making God more is adding to God's attributes, character, but also his actions. He, he wants us to attribute to God things that are actually or should be attributed to him. And here's what I mean by that. In John 10, Jesus says, Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give you life and to give you life abundantly. Notice the contrast there, right? Steal, kill, destroy. Those things have to do with chaos and death. But I've come to give you life and to give it abundantly. John, earlier on in his gospel, in the intro, will actually say that he is the light of light. I'm sorry, the light of the life of men, right? And so all of the world knows God because of Jesus Christ and him shining light or letting us in on who he is and what he's like. He's come to actually bring order and goodness and beauty. But Satan comes to steal, kill, destroy. And the sad thing is that what Satan really wants us to think about God is that he's the one bringing forth those things. So he'll get us to think that the way that God exercises his sovereignty, for instance, is to take away, is to bring disorder, is to bring chaos, is to maybe even bring death. And it looks, it looks so subtle. And, and it's so disheartening to me sometimes when it happens, but it's, it's sort of like, sometimes it's overt actually, then I'll get into the subtle. It's like, oh, that tornado that earthquake, that tsunami was caused by God, 
God wanted that to happen. So we place God's desires, you know, we, we speak to his desires as if that was his desire. And we make it more personal even sometimes. The, the cancer, the, mm. the virus, mm. that's, God wanted that and that's why it happened. But Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So what Satan is trying to get us to do is to think that God's the one who actually wants that. And this is actually quite catastrophic, and we'll get into the application a little bit later. But he wants us to think about God wrongly, to take things away from him or add things to him. And when we do that, we disrupt really everything that God has in store for us. We distort reality, and then we begin to live in a way in regard, like in relationship with him that is not good, healthy, beautiful, and everything that he wants for us. Which kind of takes us to the, the next point about him being an accuser. Yes, uh, and so obviously this direct application there, and we'll talk about that too, that we often uh, uh, question God's character. We make him less God, or I should say we're influenced by that strategy that he has to deceive us that way, or make them put more in regard to causality to God that he never was involved with, uh, such as evil. God can't be the author of evil. So he's a deceiver, but, but what else is he? Yeah, so th this idea of him being an accuser is, is written here in verses 9 through 10. Let me read it for you because it's, a, it's also attached to these two, these two terms or titles that are given to him that I think are very helpful for this as well. So the great dragon, in verse 9, was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So this, uh, this term devil is the word uh, diabolos. Um, it actually means prone to slander um, or, or accusation, right? So he, he slanders people, he accuses them. And then you get this word Satan, uh, which literally means adversary or one who stands in opposition. Um, this is why I think what we have after the Satan and the devil is this idea of the accuser or the one who brings accusation against somebody. Um, this is the same word actually used in John's gospel who wrote Revelation um, in chapter 8. Uh, in chapter 8, there's this story where the religious leaders bring this woman to Jesus who's been caught in adultery. And when they bring this woman to Jesus, they bring accusation against her. And they say, she's been caught in adultery. What should we do with her? Same word used. They're accusing her of something. And Jesus' interaction with them and with her is, is quite telling because it's the exact opposite of what Satan does. They're doing what Satan does. Jesus, if you recall, gets down into the dirt writes something that nobody knows. I can't wait to find out what it is. Um, and then basically says, cast the first stone, whoever has no sin, right? And uh, they all leave, sort of one by one, right? They accuse, Jesus relieves. So you get the contrast again here. He comes to steal, kill, destroy. He comes to give life and life abundantly. But this is what Satan about. Yeah. He's, he's the accuser. Yeah. Yeah, he's the accuser. We can do that with each other too, can't we? We can be influenced in the sense that which we judge, accuse people, and point fingers at people, and we are in a way fulfilling his his own desires in this world uh, that way. Um, 
So, um, but how does this all relate to hope and the idea of the now and the future? Uh, how, does that, how does that relate that way? Yeah, so the way that Satan accuses um, can hit us in the now, right? Which I wouldn't be surprised if many of us have experienced and maybe even currently are experiencing. But he also accuses us towards the future. So let me hit both of those uh, just briefly. He accuses us in the now by trying to bring up guilt and shame, right? So the things that we've done or said, the mistakes that we've made in the past, he, he loves to do this, to pull all of that into the now and force us to live as if all of those things are piled on top of us and it's sort of a weight that we, we can't bear. Um, it, it makes me think about uh, a trial. Um, if you recall, I think it was last year, uh, it, pff, whatever, you think about politics right now, everybody's constantly on trial because when they're going through a campaign, right, there's, everything is brought up everything that they've done in the past. And so there's these journalists doing as much work as they possibly can. There's even individuals doing as much work as they can to put it on social media about everything that we can find about this person. And I can only imagine the, the weight of that kind of scrutiny, that kind of criticism is so impossible to bear that uh, it leads to all sorts of disruption in life, again, stealing our joy and our purpose. I mean, when, when we think about all of the things that we've done wrong, said wrong, mistakes that we've made, relationships that we've destroyed, things that we wish we just would have done better, we pull all of that up. And if you just sit there and dream about those things, oh man, it just, yeah. the, there's a weight on top of you that is almost impossible to bear. It leads to great anxiety, but also depression. And sadly, even suicide, it leads to the place where a person says things in their mind that are, again, deceptions, which is, I, it would be better for everybody around me if I weren't here. Even though everybody around them is saying, no, that's not true. What is true is we want you here. But we say these things because of, either directly or indirectly, the deception of Satan. He accuses us with this guilt and with this shame, and we begin to live in this false reality when reality is God does love you, you're made in his image, and everybody around you does care for you. Um, it makes me think of also like the, the way in which, uh, sadly, um, we've, been, we've been raised in our culture. Um, when we think about how it is that he accuses us into the future, you know, we, we often think about God as this one who's, uh, as soon as we get there, the first thing that he's gonna do is roll out the scroll of all of our wrongdoings. And we live in light of that. We live in this fear that, man, one day he's just, gonna, he's just gonna punish me. He's just gonna bring the hammer down on me. We have this sort of fire and brimstone way of thinking about it. And, it, and I get it, it makes sense because the way that we've been brought up in this world, both in like our societal laws, but then also even within our families oftentimes. Like our societal laws, if you think about them, they're, they're almost all entirely based on future consequences that are negative, right? If you speed, you're gonna get a ticket. If you get caught with a ticket, your insurance is going to go up. That's the way we handle things is don't do this because then that might happen. I mean, have you ever gotten pulled over and a cop gave you a reward for driving the speed limit for the oh, last... I get them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it never happens, right? Yeah. It just never happens. That's not the way our laws are built. They're based on negative consequences. Don't do this because then that will happen. But it's also even the way in which we live familially without even realizing it. 
so many of us probably raised in homes and sadly myself even as a parent constantly thinking about how to get my children to not do something and getting them to not do it by facing negative consequences. And sadly what, what often happens is we go, well that's what my parents were like and now if I think about my heavenly father, that's what God must be like. So God must be like the law in order that we live today. God must be like the way in which my parents treated me. And sadly, that's not at all what God is like. That's a life based on accusation. But the accuser is Satan, not God. So Satan wants us to live in such a way that that is what God is like, the accuser. Meanwhile, he's saying, God is saying, I'm the exact opposite. I'm not the accuser. I'm the forgiver. I'm the inviter into something. But here he is trying to dupe us in all of these things. Yeah, so to, to kind of summarize this a little bit, as we live now, uh, we are constantly bombarded with accusation. It goes back to the, actually the William Styron quote where you know, the hopelessness is, a, is what really destroys us. We can endure the pain in light uh, of, uh, of our lives but when it becomes hopeless, that's what really crushes the soul. And that's where we're often attacked to remove, to deceive, to, to accuse us from that. That happens now. And in the future, we have this perception of uh, fire and brimstone. I think of the Jonathan Edwards' uh, famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Right? He preached this down in uh, Enfield, Connecticut. By the way, he didn't like the sermon. Uh, he didn't care for it at all. And it was atypical of the kinds of sermons he preached. I have a lot of admiration for uh, Edwards in regard as, as a pastor, as a scholar, as a, as a man of God. I don't necessarily agree with everything, a lot of other things he wrote about. But um, nonetheless, what happens is, because that was a, a trigger for the Great Revival, that, that kind of perspective is swept over right into the 20th century even now. In colleges, if you read religious works, that would be one of the works that you would read. And so there's this idea that, you know, we're going to go to heaven and God's uh, blazing fire and eyes and he's going to strike people down uh, with it. And, and that's kind of the rat race we're in, right? We're, we're, <laughs> we're inundated with this deception and accusations and we are... Uh, uh, inundated with a fear of the, of the future. So how do we escape this kind of treadmill rattler race that, that we're in? Yeah, and that's what's so beautiful about this passage. I want, like, it's straight to the point about how it is that they conquered this sort of rat race or mistaking of who God is because of the deception of Satan. In verse 11, it says this. They've conquered him. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. So I want to hit each one of these uh, briefly most of the time on the first one, and that is the blood of the lamb. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Now, what's going on here? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if most of us, when we hear they conquered by the blood of the lamb, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, Jesus as our sacrifice, right? For, for sin, for our guilt and shame. And that's true. Because uh, you'll notice this in John chapter 1, as Jesus um, is about to be baptized, it says the next day he saw Jesus, that is John the Baptist, coming toward him, and he said, Behold, a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
right? So you go to the sacrificial system, right? You go to uh, that portion of, of Leviticus where there's animals that are sacrificed when their blood is shed. Uh, we receive forgiveness for our guilt and shame. And that is absolutely true. And so hear me say this. They overcame by the blood of the lamb because they were able to recognize that the accuser who's saying guilt and shame, guilt and shame, guilt and shame, pulling up all of your past, the blood of the lamb says, no, you are absolutely forgiven, infinitely forgiven. You are absolutely loved. God doesn't push you away like death does and Satan does. God invites you in. In fact, God pursues uh, God does, God's not just there waiting for you. He's running after you, right? So the blood of the lamb definitely overcomes guilt, overcomes shame. So we don't have to live in that way anymore, in that thinking that God doesn't love me or even that anybody, right, is putting that upon us. If, if the God of the universe has his arms open and is pursuing you and another person is bringing up your guilt and shame, let the God of the universe's opinion of you override that. And I know that we are inclined, as Jim said, to put that guilt and shame on each other. And that's a sad reality of our brokenness. And I wish that I wouldn't do that to people. And I'm sure we all wish we wouldn't do that to people. But even if we do, and even if you receive that from somebody, know that the God of the universe, because of his blood that was shed, says no guilt, no shame. So they overcame the accusations of the devil, of Satan, of the deceiver because of the blood of the lamb in that way. But here's what's really interesting, right? Is the blood of the lamb was shed actually prior to the sacrificial system. See, for me, I go to, yeah, sure, John says, the, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I go, ah, oh, forgiveness, personal forgiveness. And, and again, that's true. Live in light of that but there was blood actually shed from a lamb prior to the tabernacle where sacrifices were offered and the temple where sacrifices were offered. There was blood shed from a lamb in Exodus chapter 12. And I want to read you this like sort of copy and pasted pieces of the chapter because I just didn't want to read the entire thing to you and help you to just grab hold of even some of the things that we were saying earlier about how it is that we overcome deception. So here, here are the words of God in Exodus 12. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Notice this, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover for all pass through the land of Egypt that night and I'll strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now notice this. The first blood shed from a lamb in the scriptures has to do with the Passover which is the escape from Egyptian oppression and bondage, primarily through Pharaoh, but notice what, what God says here, and the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt, to the Israelites and to the Egyptians, had to do with satanic powers. 
that they weren't just carved out stones or things made out of wood that they bowed down to. There were animated powers behind that that were trying to influence them. Uh, Might we just say satanic or demonic oppression? And here, what's going on is the blood of the lamb is getting them out of, out of the oppression of Pharaoh and the satanic and demonic oppression. So what we have here is not just the freedom of the accusation, but the freedom of deception. Now, now, how does this actually look? Well, when you carry on, you notice that, I'm sorry, let me read to you a couple other scriptures as well that I I just forgot about. Um, We read this in 1 Corinthians where Paul emphasizes this point as well. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the, uh, of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Like this was, their worldview was like, there is oppression. And so in Colossians 2, he says, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so what we have here is certainly the blood of the lamb helps us to be free from accusation of shame and of guilt. But there's even a bigger story here, setting us free from the works of Satan and from demonic oppression, the lies that seek to steal reality from us, he wants to give back to us. And so what will happen is right after this, we'll hear about John saying, it's not just the blood of the lamb though that sets you free from accusation, sets you free from temptation, but it's also the word of our testimony. Yes. Um, One of the things that, that helped me Personally, especially when I found myself being accused, uh, either in my mind or from others or from, I think, God, <laughs> which is not the case, uh, or it, it directly from, from, uh, from evil saying this to me. Um, I think I've done one of two things. I've either fought about it with them. I am not this way. You know, so I become prideful. I'm better than what you're saying. So I become prideful about it. Or I say, you're right. I'm a worm. It doesn't deserve to, to crawl on the, on the floor. Just squash me now. And I, and I stop there. And what you're saying is, if, is that we should agree that, yeah, you know, I am these things, but I'll tell you something, that the blood of the Lamb has covered the faults, the failings, the things that you're accusing me of. They are no longer true of me because I'm not the same person I was. I'm a different person. And I don't, that's me personally, it's helped me a lot to come out from under that kind of uh, finger pointing. But so we have the blood of the lamb, right? And then we've got... uh, this other aspect that he talks about, which is an interesting one, by the, by the word of their testimony, what's he, what's he trying to get at here? Yeah, and this actually covers both of these ideas of the deception and the accusation. So the word of our testimony, first of all, think about accusation. You're guilty, you're ashamed, you can't possibly get to God or be in his presence. But the word of the testimony is that Jesus, in, in entering in, and in living, dying, and rising, and in the midst of that, calling his disciples, forgiving his enemies, is saying, right, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. The word of our testimony is whenever we feel accused, we we tend to self-talk, right? That's what 
where the accusation usually comes from is from in our own heads. People often do it to us, but more than likely it's within our own heads. And in that self-talk, what we ought to be saying is, no, I know that I am loved, infinitely loved by God, because he sent his son. Like, that's what is true. What is, what is ultimately true, capital T truth, is God does love me and he has forgiven me. So we, we, we get out of the accusation by that testimony of truth, but also out of the deception, right? We look out at the world and we deceive ourselves that because of our feelings, our circumstances, whatever it might be, that, oh, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. But the testimony of the truth is that he rose from the dead, which means that, that every promise that he made is true. If he actually did rise from the dead, then he sends his spirit and he's making all things new. Those things are absolutely true. This is why Jesus says this in, in 831 of, of uh, John's gospel. He says, if you abide in my word, which is the things that I've said, the truth that I've spoken, the teachings that I've given, you are truly my disciples. You'll know the truth. And that's not just a, a cognitive thing. The truth will set you free. Like, notice this theme, right? You're set free from Pharaoh and from the gods of Egypt. You're set free from guilt and shame, knowing the truth that he actually does love us so much that he would live, die, and rise. That's where freedom actually is from Satan's power. So this idea of abiding, too, by the way, the idea of living with it, that's the, the word's used that way in John, where he's asked, you know, where do you live? Where do you abide? Come and see. It's actually a use of physically living with it. So when we live by that, in that truth, that it's a part of our lives on a present day process, that we're set free from it. It's a beautiful, it's a wonderful, beautiful truth to, to grab hold of. So, um, see, Revelation talks about here th that they were conquered, they were overcomers, uh, nikao, right? That, where we get Nike from. They were overcomers victorious by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And the third one is, it's an interesting one, for they loved not their lives even unto death. What's he, what's he getting at here? Yeah, there's, there's an attitude um, about the reality in which they live, and this will bring us to the table, where they understood that this isn't it. They could see what it is that they were going through and the circumstances that they were in. And their feelings were, were very real, not necessarily true, but they were real. They could, they could sense the, the trials, the tribulations, and even death that they were going to face, and yet in the midst of it, grabbed hold of this greater truth. We've mentioned this before, but that greater truth that he is making all things new and that this, this isn't it. And they were so able to grab that future truth and pull it into the present that they loved their lives, this life, even unto death. That they knew that like, the, the next would be better. And the way that they were able to do that was precisely because of what it is that we're about to partake in. They, they recognized that the worst thing that could ever happen to a human being, uh, death, but even more so than death, death by crucifixion could actually bring forth resurrection. And uh, as they rested in that, as they believed in that, 
they were able to live their life with the joy and with the freedom to which Satan had no hold on at all. And that brings us to the table. Yeah, on the night that he was betrayed, right? Context of betrayal, by the way, that he, he takes this bread and this cup. And it's all part of the uh, Passover, by the way, which links back to Genesis as well, to, uh, I mean, Exodus, which, which relates to this idea of freedom. It relates to this idea of, uh, of communion and fellowship and abiding. So the bread, you know, and Jesus was speaking Obviously, he's speaking in a figure of speech because he's sitting there and he says, this bread is my body. He's referring to the fact that this was given for, for us uh, on, on behalf of us based, because he was sacrificing his life because he did not love his life even unto death. And we share in that. And when we share in that, we are saying to him and to one another that we are identifying with the fact that that sacrifice has made us acceptable, has made us righteous, that has in the process of making us righteous, and that we do not have to listen to the lies and the deception of the evil one. So, let's take of this bread together and remember that. Let's share this together. And in the same way, he took the cup, uh, the blood of the lamb. Once again, relating to the new covenant, to the sacrifice and the atonement for the life is in the blood. And when he died for us, he covered and uh, forgave all of our sins. Now, you know, First John 1 John 1.9 says, um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins. So I said this before. So we look at the sins in our life that we've done that violates the heart of God. And we confess them to him. We agree with God that, they're, that they're, I was wrong. And we ask for that forgiveness. And he gives it to us based upon the blood, but also he forgives us for the ones that we don't know. All unrighteousness. So, you know, if I have, you know, a spot on my pants that, you know, that I've asked forgiveness for and he brushes it off, but I have a hole in my shirt that I don't see in the back here, he takes care of that as well. Now that is forgiveness. And that is complete forgiveness. We don't have to worry whether we've confessed all of our sins or I'm missing something or because that's accusations, by the way. That's the, the wiles and the strategy of the devil to make you think that you're not completely forgiven. This verse puts a nail in that coffin. And this cup, is that we do it in remembrance and recalling uh, that kind of forgiveness for all of us. So let's take of that together.
So this will be the last time we'll meet in this kind of format next week, um, hopefully, as Anthony outlined. And uh, I'm sure you'll get a message this week about uh, coming. I hope you're able to come. And uh, this will also be broadcast on the on our Facebook page live. So you'll be able to look at it from that perspective or come and be with. The sanctuary will look a little different, a little more sparse uh, in terms of distance and so on. So right now, though, we're going to sing a hymn to God, thanking him for all he is and all that he's done for us. Thanks. <laughs> 